Hey, welcome everyone. I'm Don Newton, host of Open Air on KPOV 889 FM, High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. Airing Wednesdays at 5 p.m., Open Air is a weekly one-hour entertainment talk show featuring conversations with authors, local youth, entertainers, sports figures, and more. She's a real woman with a real life. She's someone you can relate to. Open Air with Don Newton. Welcome, everyone. This is Open Air, and I'm your host, Don Newton. How would you define our political climate today? I think I know. <laughs> it, would, it wouldn't be a very uh, uplifting definition or description for sure. I think we can all agree that we are miserable, that we are all exhausted, that we're all wondering, how did we get here? What happened to us? And how do we fix this? How do we come back to the table? How do we go back to having dialogue? And how do we go back to creating solutions for the issues that are important to all of us. And when I talk about issues, I'm talking the economy, racial justice, climate change, law enforcement, the list goes on and on. My guest today is is the perfect person to be talking to about this. His name is Peter T. Coleman. He is a professor of psychology and education at Columbia University. He joins me today to talk about his latest book, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. And if I'm being honest, Peter's work and this book gives me hope. Peter T. Coleman, it's great to speak with you. You're joining us today to talk about your book, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me, Dawn. It's, uh, it's great, to, great to be with you. I understand you are a professor of psychology and education at Columbia University. You've done a lot of work and written several books on conflict, uh, disagreement, finding solutions to seemingly impossible conflicts. You've been doing this for a while. Tell us about this particular book, The Way Out. For about 20 years, I've run something at Columbia called the Difficult Conversations Lab, where we match people who are opposed on morally divisive issues and bring them into the lab. And then we study the conditions under which those conversations go well or, or you know, get stuck and go terribly poorly. And so we, you know, have a couple of decades of research on that. The book I wrote in 2011, The 5%, was to some degree based on that. But over the past several years, as um, you know, the political rhetoric in America heated up so much, and as the Washington, Washington became more and more, you know, shut down, stalemated, and, and dysfunctional, and as I just saw the the degree of enmity and hate that was uh, increasing, you know, just not only in my community but um, certainly on the internet, and then started to look into the national trends on this, you know, I became concerned about it, and I felt like I because of the research we do, you know, we, we study one of the areas that we study are long-term intractable conflict and, you know, and, and conflicts that get stuck for decades. And this pattern of political polarization is about a 50-year pattern in the U.S. of increasingly hostile relations in Washington, D.C., increasing what they call affective polarization, contempt for the other side. And because it is one of these long-term kind of deeply ensconced patterns, cultural patterns in the country, I felt like our science and our research had insights to offer people who were looking to get out 
looking to escape the attraction of this kind of dysfunction. So I think one of my first questions is, is, how did we get here? And I know it's not just recent. This has been boiling and happening for a very long time. Well, again, it depends on who you ask and, and how, how far back you look. But it does seem like in the late 1970s, our country took a turn where politics as war became more typical. You know, this was part of a longer term pattern of both in D.C., people were being estranged from one another and vilifying one another and and therefore being much much more difficult to solve complicated problems together, to come together and work together. Um, but it's also true that that's been happening on the streets. Uh, again, since the 1970s, we've seen increasingly you know, animosity, uh, our perception of the other side. We, you know, each tribe thinks the other is more extreme in their attitudes and their points of views. And we've been kind of structurally moving away from each other, like literally reds and blues are sorting geographically and moving away from each other, even within cities. There was a recent piece in the Times that just you could go in and put your uh, zip code and it will tell you, uh, you know, sort of where who who is in your community. And what you see overwhelmingly is that you have neighborhoods that are strong blue or strong red, but not both. Right. There's there's less and less purple. So this is happening in the Internet as well. We're being sorted virtually in the Internet as well. So part of what I try to explain in the book is that this isn't a simple problem. It's not just that we have different values or there, there are a lot of different factors that scientists have found that are contributing to this. But it's really not, not any one of those things. It's how they all start to reinforce each other and align in ways that create this really strong pulls away from each other. And so to some degree, this pattern is bigger than any of us. It's bigger than your attitude or my attitude or even how we speak to each other. It's reinforced by the media, by the internet, by political, you know, gerrymandering processes. And so there are a lot of different factors that are coming to bear on this problem, which is why it's become so seemingly intractable and so long-term. Well, you just mentioned it, and I was curious about how social media, the internet, how our media, our journalism has certainly changed. We don't just get news anymore, facts, and then let us decide. Everybody has a narrative. Everybody has an agenda. You know, clickbait. I can't imagine that that has not had a tremendous impact. Yeah, they're both. I think that the business model behind the internet and behind the major platforms on the internet, the social media platforms, and the business model of a lot of, uh, you know, news and information these days is about provocation. You know, the, the what what tends to get people's attention is finding a conflict, finding two sides, presenting the extreme versions of those sides, pitting people against each other, because humans are drawn to a conflict. We, you know, when we see a conflict on the street, people stop and look, right? <laughs> Same is true as a, a newspaper headlines and on social media. It is the, the kind of coin of the realm. In fact, I, I, I tell a story in the book about going to a, a, a pop-up meeting in New York City of some of the executives of the social media platforms. And they were talking about, they wrote up on the board, what kind of dialogue should we be having on social media in order to promote a healthy virtual society? And I said, well, what do you mean by dialogue? And then there was silence. And I said, because most people mean debate. Most people, particularly around politics, means that you have a position and either I agree with it and we jo you know, join forces, or if I de disagree with it, then I critique you and I look for flaws in your logic. And debate is a way of communicating that is very, very culturally normative in America. 
right? We, we're, we're trained in debate in high school. We see it in politics. We see it in the, in the court, in courts. We see it on television. And so we think that's dialogue is when I challenge you to a game of trying to win an argument. And dialogue is the opposite. Dialogue is a, is a process of discovery and learning and openness where people tell their stories and, and, and speak to the kind of their, their you know, basic human experience. And it opens people up to understanding themselves and others and the issues in more nuanced ways. And so when I asked that question of these internet executives, there was silence. And then there, one of the co-founders of Facebook was there and he said, oh, well, if that's dialogue, then there's no major platform on the internet that promotes dialogue because it's all about competition, social comparison, confrontation, provocation, you know, that's what sells and what goes viral on the internet. Um, it is about the kind of outrage industry in both, you know, mainstream media and social media. And so those structures are on top of the political divisions that have been with us for decades. So they are both accelerants of this pattern that we're, we're trapped in. Well, and there's so, so much emotion right now. Having dialogue or having conversation, just as you're saying, is next to impossible. And that's not just, you know, if we're looking at our talking heads or what we consider, I don't even, I, have, I struggle calling them political leaders, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the political right, yeah. heads. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, I, I, I mean, in your introduction in the book, it talks about disdain for sides. It's like, I've got disdain for both sides. It's like, I just don't, I, uh, disappointed, yeah. quite frankly. And I want to have more yeah. faith in we the people and how yeah. we the people need to hold both sides. Everybody needs to be held accountable. The transparency and the yeah. truth. Trust is so eroded right now. It's, it's very, it's just, it's the worst reality show possible. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. This is a bad time. Um, and your experience of being kind of fed up and exhausted and not even have the energy anymore for contempt is pretty commonly shared. You know, there's recent studies by a group called More in Common that studies American polarization. And part of what they have found is that a vast majority of what they call the middle tribes, not the extreme wings, but the middle are exhausted and fed up and become more and more disengaged from politics and disengaged from, you know, social media because it just feels kind of hopeless. And that's really why I wrote this book. It's really dedicated to, it's actually 86% of the exhausted middle majority, they call it, um, <laughs> are fed up and, and kind of looking for a way out. But one, one of the things I do want to say is, yeah, I think you're right that what we do need is to re-engage, but people need to have a sense of how to do that. And, you know, just sort of reaching out to somebody who you know has a different political view and trying to have a conversation these days can really easily backfire because because we live in these kind of parallel universes uh, and media, you know, ecosystems that we really have completely different facts and figures. So those conversations are not, don't lend themselves to just casual encounters. But the good news is there are something like 7,000 community-based organizations across the country today that actually know how to bring people together across these divides, know how to set up and facilitate conversations either between you know, individuals or in groups of people that are, have a set of norms and facilitation processes that help us do this and help us begin to hear each other and listen to each other. And, 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 and that, so my recommendation, 
if you go, there's a website called the Bridging Divides Initiative, and it's out of Princeton University. And if you go to it, there's a map of the U.S. And if you click on your area of the map, it shows you the groups that exist today in your community that are doing this work. And so what I say to people who are fed up but really feel a need to either better understand or re-engage kind of political conversations that most of us live in. One thing that I notice is I don't see a lot of or encouraging that piece of just critical thinking, just questioning what we're hearing, questioning what we're clicking on. Yeah. You know, we're not, we're tuned into one one particular TV station or one radio dial as opposed to being curious about, okay, wait a minute, I hear this side, I want to go hear this side. How do we yeah. encourage that or do we... It feels like that isn't even, don't even try to say that. <laughs> don't even, yeah, you know, yeah. you just kind of, it is a challenge. And especially just what I do with my interviews, I am curious about how people think and why they do what they do. I'm mm-hmm. very curious about so-called followers of particular political parties or events mm-hmm. or causes. Like, how did you get there? How did you form this opinion? What experiences did you have? I mean, I really want to know these things so that I can understand because we all have our own little enclave, our own little bubbles that we live in just because of where we live or what we do or, you know, what we've been exposed to. And that sometimes seems to be used against us. Yeah, no, it's true. It's weaponized. I mean, what we know from psychology is that when people feel highly anxious and or threatened, then then they they do seek the comfort of similarity. They seek seek comfort in people whose attitudes are similar to those who, you know, can reinforce. And that's, you know, really what you see in the structure of the internet is you see reds talking to reds and blues talking to blues and they're, you know, and part of that is because it's a more comforting thing to do. And you have to have the kind of energy and as you suggested, curiosity to really reach out and try to listen to some other side, right. And take that in. And again, part of what I argue is like, well, who, who on the other side do you listen to? You know, because I saw recently a statistic that 80% of the content on Twitter is put out by 10% of the users. And those users tend to be much more extreme and much more provocative. And so their stuff goes viral and is overly influential. And so what I always say is, and what I actually make an active attempt to do is to identify people on you know, who have different political views than I, who I think are smart, you know, people that are reasonable and, tr- and, and trying their best, right? And, and those are the people I follow on social media. And those are the people, you know, when some action, when some event takes place in, some political action takes place and it's on the news, then I, you know, I seek out those different points of view intentionally because I know if I just go to my, you know, default news program, it's going to have comfort for me, but it's not going to have a, a more accurate, frankly, a, a take on reality. So if you really want to understand, and if you're, you know, if you're in a place where you have the kind of energy to do that, you want to understand what's really going on, you need to have these different perspectives because they provide a more, you know, if they're informed, they provide a more accurate view of that. So let me give you one just specific example. There's a group, there's a, there's a, um, an email a service called Flipside. And this is a woman named Anafi Wahad put this together. And they, every day, they curate 30 different um, periodicals, you know, news sources. Um, and they find 
you know, smart voices on the left and the right on any particular issue. So like in the morning, it'll be, okay, uh, you know, China, uh, the threat of China. And they'll, so they'll take one issue and then they'll curate what they think are, you know, intelligent perspectives on different sides of the aisle. And they present all of them to you in a five minute read on your email. And that kind of thing is intentionally seeking out, not just, you know, the, the nuts on either side, you know, who are spouting nonsense, but people that, you know, reasonably differ on these issues, but are thoughtful and informed about it. That's what we need to try to actively seek out more in our lives. What is your response to how it seems like we broad brush everything? Mm. You're either a racist or you're anti-homeless or you're, you know, you're something, um, even when it comes to COVID. Because all of those situations are complicated and there's layers to them and taking the time to understand and, you know, and not polarize it and not weaponize it. But everything seems to be broad brushed, but we don't. We don't want to do the deep dive. We don't want to peel back the layers or understand. Yeah, well, part of what you're talking about is, is cancel culture. And cancel culture, of course, exists on both sides of the divide, right? Cancel culture as a, as a phrase has been, you know, a weaponized um, description of what happens on the left, on, you know, too much wokeness and people basically, you know, killing dissenters in their group. Um, but that's also existed on the right forever, right? So it's, you know, that, that kind of purification of your group and throwing out people that think differently has happened forever. That's, I think, what you want to sort of begin with, is if you find that in your group of friends who may be likely share similar political views, because that's kind of how we hang in America, you know, we, we hang with people we're comfortable with. But within that, you're going to have folks that are more inclined to canceling people that have different points of views. And, and, and I think that's a good place to start the conversation is even within your in-group, are you able to tolerate different points of view, tolerate people that talk to members of the other side that actually watch members of the media that have different points of view? You know, is there that kind of tolerance within your groups? Again, that information, that kind of, you know, contrary information or dissent is really critical to understanding the world today. If you if you only have one side of an argument, you've got the wrong side, you know, because you need to have multiple sides of complex issues. Um, and so one way to begin to kind of actively deconstruct that in your life is to take a hard look at your own friend friend group and community group and the people you do talk and listen to, and is there you know sufficient diversity of opinion in that uh, in that group, and if not. That's where you want to start those conversations about why can't we disagree with each other and still feel like we're well-intentioned? Why do we have to vilify anybody that goes, you know, further out on an opinion than we're comfortable with? Well, and also, I think just looking within ourselves, how did I come to my opinions? What brought me to this view? You know, when I was younger, it was my parents because that's what I didn't know any different and didn't think to question it. And being curious about just yourself and how you came to the views and opinions you have. But at the same time, it's okay to disagree. It's okay to have difference of opinions or views. And I think that's one of the other pieces is, I I I guess, letting people know it's okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) It's really okay. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, again, any issue, people have to feel some some degree of ambivalence around. You know, when they, like, when we take something like immigration and, 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 and boil it down to build a wall or don't build a wall, 
Well, that is taking this immensely complicated set of dilemmas and, and, and hyper-simplifying it, right? And that's sort of what, what we get sucked into. But if you can come to terms with your own ambivalence and your own lack of knowledge and information about these things, that's at least an honest place to start. You know, there's, there's a really interesting thing in research called uh, social identity complexity. And what they find is that, um, you know, most of us have multiple group identities, right? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a white guy. I'm a professor. I'm a father. I'm a Cubs fan. I'm a this, I'm a that, right? I've got all these kind of group identities. And, and, and if you look at those, if you look at the, the groups that are important to you, what, what you can ask yourself is, are they all pretty aligned, right? Am I, you know, I'm pro-choice, I'm green environment, I'm, you know, am, am I all kind of lefty liberal in my perspectives? Or is there some more contradictory group memberships that I have in there, things that kind of push back on that? And what they find is that those of us that are, for example, homosexual and diehard Republicans, right? Those of us that hold those kinds of more contradictory identities are much more tolerant and accepting of others, right? Of others who are different from them because they internally have those contradictions. The reality is we all have those contradictions. We just don't identify them. We don't come to terms with them. We're not comfortable enough with ourselves to be sort of accept them and the more that we can do that, the more comfortable we are with accepting others' differences um, and other different points of view. It's fascinating watching this. My jaw drops a lot. <laughs> it's like, oh, my yeah. gosh, I, uh, yeah. you can't make this up. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it is an extraordinary time. We are in an extraordinary time. And, you know, the Trump approach to leadership and the presidency. He, he is a divisive leader. He does pit one side against the other in order to gain power and hold on to power. That's his stuff. He's not the only political leader that's done that. Certainly history has many of those, but he's not a, he was not a uniter. He was a divider and, and was very good at that, right? But he's not the only problem. He, there was fertile ground for uh, that kind of leadership. Um, and as I said, the media does that. Social media does that. You know, there are major kind of structural forces that are part of this. And this is why this has been 50 years in the making and getting worse and worse every day. And it's why we're seeing spikes in hate crimes and political violence and those types of things, because these things culminate in places where people become completely intolerant of the other and lash out. That's what we have to lower the temperature on. We really have to figure out how do we learn to disagree with people that we disagree with in ways that don't essentialize them, vilify them, and ultimately lead to violence. And, and I have to say, I have to have, and we the people, my, my neighbors, my community, the people, the voters, we put these people on these pedestals, whether it's Trump, Biden, whomever it is, they're, they're a figurehead. They don't necessarily represent me. Maybe they represent some of me, but not all of me. Yeah, we put so much on that person that's in that position as a, yeah. as a definition of who we are. And we need to yeah. like revisit that, I, I feel. This is who is in that position for this amount of time, but that doesn't define yeah. us. And we can overcome that and still stay together. I always think about you know, the car accident or when there's a tragedy or a neighbor is in need and we all come together to help for that one yeah. cause, you know, whether yeah. it was 9-11, whether it's a solar eclipse, 
whether it's yeah. whatever it is, we can come together and yeah. we're not seeing blue or red or whatever. We're just coming together as humans for a really cool reason to give yeah. back. And we don't ever stop and are you red? Are you blue? Or who are you? Yeah. We're able to do yeah. it, you know? Yeah, we, we typically are. And in fact, that's one of the things that was the most concerning to me around COVID is that COVID should have been the, that moment. It should have been a moment where we as a nation, we as a, you know, as a species came together and said, whoa, this is a terrifying threat, biological threat coming at us. We need to all come together and fight this threat. That is, in, in my field, it's what they call disaster diplomacy. When you have major disasters, you have, you know, warring groups put down their arms and say, okay, we got to rebuild this community and rebuild the society. And that can completely change the dynamic. And it didn't happen with COVID, which speaks to the degree to which we are, you know, toxically sitting in these cesspools of contempt for one another and that we really need to escape it because you're right. There, there are opportunities to do that, that present themselves. And, and like, you know, look at the wildfires fires that took place in your part of the country last year. Those were weaponized, right, by the, <laughs> by the left and the right as, like, who's intentionally starting these wildfires in order to – it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, these are wildfires destroying homes and communities. This is a time that neighbors come together. And, and even those kinds of events were, you know, too easily, too readily uh, vilified. So, so you're right that those kinds of moments can bring us together, um, but they're insufficient when you have this, what I call first order problems. When you have tribal groups that are, you know, weaponizing things. You know, let me say one quick thing. You were talking about what we invest in our leaders and and, you know, I've always been, I've not been a fan of royalty because I always think, you know, that I don't get it. You know, <laughs> when I go to England, I don't understand why people, when the queen goes on television, they actually stand up. You know, it's like, wait a minute, what are you doing? You know? But I have to say, in watching The Crown, what I started to realize is that that separation of kind of the moral authority of the monarchy from the political actors, right, uh, it, it's, it's, there's something to that, right? Because the people, the, our leaders, our political leaders, they're po politicians, and they're they are trying to gain and hold on to and increase their power and their position because they believe their side is right. And we shouldn't invest too much moral authority in those actors. <laughs> you know, we we need some other place to find that. It is. It's it's an interesting time, and I always I am I I want to say we need to we people need to yeah. get our you know take our power back. But even me making yeah. a statement like that, somebody could be like, oh that that's triggered me. You know, when you say take your power yeah. back, that means right. you know let's come together, let's unite, find a common well, ground, and um. I think we really do want the same things, but man, it's so distorted right now. It is distorted, but you're, you know, you're, you're right that the, I think the we that what I hear in that statement is the, the middle need to re-engage, right? Because you have, in some ways, we're being manipulated and controlled by the extremes, whether it's extremes on the internet or extreme politicians or, you know, the, those are the folks that are telling the story about what our society is today. And what happens is the exhausted middle disengage, right? Because they just, they just don't see, they don't want it, they don't see it, they don't need it. Well, we need to re-engage them. We need to say to the middle, 
you know, it's time to take back our democracy and to re-engage in constructive ways and show that we can do that um, because then that diminishes the power and the seduction of the extremists and the addiction to outrage that many of us have if we can choose to engage in a different way, which is why I wrote this book. It's really dedicated to that group, and it's saying this is what science suggests you can do in your life, in your family, in your community that can help you re-engage in a more constructive way. Who do you want reading this book, Peter? Well, uh, 86% of Americans that are exhausted, fed up, and looking for a way out. That's who, <laughs> I'd love, that's who I would lo- love to read this book because, again, what I... Tra- so one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I felt like with uh, the levels of hostility and political violence that we were seeing, there are a lot of folks that are trying to do good things, but they're not aware of the research on when those things help and when they make things worse. And so what I tried to be very clear about in the book is, you know, again, I don't think it's wise to tell a, you know, a true Trump believer and a, and a never Trump voter to just get together and have a cup of coffee because that's likely to blow up. So, What I say is what the research says is these are the things you should do. Like, for example, if you want to have those conversations, then find smart, well-facilitated groups in your community that know how to do that and go there first. And then you can begin those conversations. And that may lead to relationships where you can take a walk with somebody from the other side. And that can change how you see things, they see things, and you can start to identify what you have in common. That's what the book tries to do is focus on what the research offers in terms of steps that have been proven to be useful under these kinds of extraordinary conditions. And I appreciate our conversation and having this, yeah. and hopefully it will help inspire or empower our listeners and, and beyond. Yeah. So I appreciate yeah. this work and and all that you do in bringing this forward for us. I appreciate well, this in your time. Well, thank you. I appreciate the platform, and I agree. I, I, I hope it does at least give people a glimpse that there can be things that they can do. They're not helpless, you know, and they're, it's, it's not a hopeless time. It's a hard time. But these, some, these times can be so destabilizing that they can really bring a new tomorrow, and that's what I'm hoping will come up this. Peter, where can we find your book, and where can we learn more about you and your work? So the, the book has a website called thewayoutofpolarization.com. You can search me, Peter T. Coleman. I'm at Columbia University, and I run a couple centers there that do research. And so there's information about other things I do. But most of the information in the book is available at that website. Well, again, I appreciate this time, Peter, and I appreciate your work. Thank you. Thank you very much for the for the platform. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening to Open Air. And I want to thank my special guest, Peter T. Coleman, talking about his book, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. For more information about Peter Coleman and his work, you can visit his website, which is thewayoutofpolarization.com. Open Air is written, produced, and hosted by Don Newton. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and our program schedule, go to kpov.org.